Hello and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of the channel, and today I'm speaking with Mark Simon Rodriguez, author of Rethinking the Chicano Movement, published by Routledge in 2015 as part of their series on American social and political movements uh, of 20th century uh, America. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of the channel, and today I'm speaking with Mark Simon Rodriguez, author of Rethinking the Chicano Movement, published by Routledge in 2015 as part of their series on American social and political movements uh, of 20th century uh, America. Uh, Dr. Rodriguez is Associate Professor of History and Managing Editor of the Pacific Historical Review at Portland State University. He has written and lectured extensively on the history of Mexican-American farm workers and civil rights and is recognized as a leading authority on Mexican-American internal migration and Chicano-era politics. His first book, The Tejano Diaspora, Mexican-Americanism and Ethnic Politics in Texas and Wisconsin, was awarded the 2012 Nax Texas Nonfiction Book Award by the National Association for Chicano, Chicana and Chicano Studies, Texas Focal. Hello, Mark, and welcome to New Books in Latino Studies. Thanks. Well, it's great to have you here, and I was wondering um, if you would begin our conversation today by telling us a little bit about your personal background and your path to becoming you know, an academic and a professor of U.S. history and, and the Chicano experience. Okay. Um, well, I, I'm originally from Wisconsin, and the reason I start there is that uh, when I was doing my first book, I interviewed, interviewed Jose Angel Gutierrez, and he said, oh, yes, I guess there are Chicanos in Wisconsin. <laughs> uh, and it was funny because he'd actually been there several times in the 60s and 70s organizing. Uh, so, yes, I started in the Great Lakes, uh, did my graduate work at Northwestern, and uh, was working mainly with people who did uh, immigration and ethnic studies uh, scholarship. And then from there, I really was interested in sort of thinking about the way that the Midwest had been uh, for a very long time central to uh, Mexican-American history, and yet because it didn't have the kind of uh, large numbers of settled year-round uh, Mexican immigrant and Chicano residents, it really hadn't been uh, studied, I think, to the degree it should be. That's changed a lot in the last 15 or 20 years, mm-hmm. uh, but when I was starting out in graduate school, that seemed like a big hole that needed to be uh, plugged, and uh, for good reason. Uh, I've, I've worked a lot of places, but I'm now at Portland State University uh, and uh, editing the Pacific Historical Review. Uh, that's been kind of wonderful because uh, that enables me to read a lot of new material uh, from graduate students and scholars, uh, mainly coming from the Pacific Rim countries. We get a lot of submissions from Australia and mm-hmm. Japan. Uh, but it keeps me up to date on a lot of stuff that I probably wouldn't normally read as just somebody working in Chicano studies. So uh, it's it's been uh, a long, uh, interesting trip, and uh, uh, I'm really glad that I started it. Uh, and it all began as a, uh, a senior uh, paper at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee on Tejano farm workers in, at that point, uh, the city of Milwaukee. Uh, so it's uh, it's it's been an interesting and almost a lifelong uh, interest of mine to be writing on Chicano studies and, in particular, uh, Tejano farm workers. Right. Thanks for that. And I'd like to be, uh, spend just a little time discussing uh, your first book, as I'm really fascinated by the, the concept of diaspora as you use it and, and bring it into a discussion of Mexican-American uh, politics. Uh, so with the, the Tejano diaspora, um, I believe it, 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 the usage of the term is increasing, that is, diaspora is increasing within, you know, Mexican-American Chicano academic circles, but not, you know, not as much, not as much, so much as immigration, migration, etc. So can you talk a bit about, uh, you know, how the concept of, of diaspora, how you, you know, connect that with this, uh, particularly the narrative that you weave in, in your first book and, and why it really, it, it seems to be the central concept of that book? Right. Um, I think... I started uh, thinking about a way to come up with, I guess, a terminology for understanding the ways in which uh, Tejano farm workers and other farm workers, uh, mainly domestic farm workers after World War II, um, had created communities that were short-term sometimes uh, and really depended on on seasonal agricultural uh, migratory routes, but over time uh, became... uh, 
permanent in that there were core settlers in places like uh, Wisconsin, uh, Minnesota, Michigan, uh, I'd say even Washington and Oregon. Uh, and that there wasn't really a useful way for me to kind of think about that. And I talked to other scholars working at Chicano Studies, and it sort of bounced around the idea of some kind of a subset of transnational history, but it really didn't fit that uh, what was essentially interstate transregional or translocal history right. uh, fit the paradigm of transnational studies. And I think I also found out in having those discussions that, you know, people who were writing about Mexican-American history and thinking seriously about transnational migration themselves didn't have a way to get at this secondary, intranational, kind of internal migratory uh, stream that had had been developed uh, really as a result of uh, working on uh, various uh, agricultural jobs over time. And so I didn't know what to call it, and so I remember having discussions with uh, people I knew that were working in diaspora studies, and it just sort of dawned on me that uh, the work of Jim Gregory and others who were thinking about diasporas within the United States fit really nicely. And so it seemed that, and I was having people read the introduction and the various chapters, and when people were troubled with how to come at this and think about it past sort of an orientation that looked at transnational, um, when I shifted to diaspora, people were much more comfortable with it. Um, I did have uh, one friend take a look at the project and, you know, read some of the chapters and he was a little reluctant to use diaspora for anything but, uh, Jewish studies. Um, but then after some discussion about the way that migratory labor functioned and migrant labor communities, uh, developed across the migrant stream, mm -hmm. uh, it seemed that people were persuaded that it could work here. Um, and I think it has utility in other places as well. And so for me, I was really trying to put the emphasis on internal migration to look at the right. ways in which really small communities were part of a large diaspora that moved hundreds and thousands of people across the nation every year uh, and yet left, you know, really small settled communities uh, really like stars in the sky all over the uh, Great Plains and Midwest and Pacific Northwest and even the West. Yeah, and let's talk about Texas a little bit. And um, you have some great images uh, in, in the beginning pages of the book um, that, that really show t place Texas as the epicenter of this diaspora. Can you talk a bit about that? Why, uh, why was that? I, I think that Texas was important uh, for the migrants for a couple of reasons. Uh, first, it was their home, and they saw it as their home even if they hadn't lived there in a long time. Um, there was something about this process of leaving uh, that I think pulled at the heartstrings of the migrants themselves when they were working in Michigan or Minnesota or Wisconsin. Uh, there was this sense that a people that seemed so unrooted uh, really did have roots that were important to them. Even if they worked nine months out of the year elsewhere, Texas was key. Um, it was also key for them in terms of their development uh, for many of the young people a uh, variety of uh, changes in educational reform in Texas meant that uh, they were really encouraged to, to stay in school longer uh, than, say, their parents or their grandparents had. And so what I really thought was interesting about Texas was that even though we were mainly looking at, say, people that were graduating from high school or attending high school for the first time, uh, it's a majority after World War II, um, they really had become kind of the intellectual elite of their community with so many family members who'd only had three or four years of education, to have all these young people in the 50s and early 60s tied to Texas with real a real sense of themselves as Tejanos, and I don't mean 18th century Tejanos, I mean 20th century Tejanos. Um, and that connection for them was 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 connect was linked to uh, ideas of citizenship that they really gained through something as simple as uh, civics education, uh, and they brought that with them. So I think one of the most dangerous things for minorities and for workers in a lot of ways is a sense of themselves and their rights as citizens. Uh, and these young people 
who, you know, really with a high school diploma or almost a high school diploma, uh, were kind of the intellectual elite of their communities. And so in that kind of circular migration, uh, uh, they were tying and borrowing things uh, and linking things, excuse me, together uh, that I don't think people in Texas anticipated, certainly not Anglo ranchers and, you know, the petite bourgeoisie and small South Texas towns, but also not the agricultural employers in the, in the north. And so uh, that migration itself became, I think, really pivotal to remaking them and also giving them a sense of citizenship that went beyond a subordinate position in Texas in a fixed social system but rather the migration itself opened up a lot of channels for uh, new imaginings of where they fit within the political system, the social system, both in Texas and elsewhere. Right. And as the, you know, the, the book begins, you actually start with a very you know personal anecdote of actually making that trip between Texas and, and uh, Wisconsin or Milwaukee, was it? Um, right. You know, yourself with your family. And so what were, you know, the, the book becomes a, a you know, a, a story of, you know, activism that uh, a type of translocal activism in, in many parts that encompasses, you know, labor and, and both political rights. Uh, so can you talk about what, you know, initially laid, you know, the network for the connections between, you know, because the book's particularly about Texas, uh, the connection between Texas and, and Wisconsin. So what initially laid the, the groundwork for, you know, the, the networks and connections that formed between those two spaces? And then how did, you know, politics and activism, you know, just in, in a brief summary, I know that's what the whole book is about, but, um, you know, transfer between those two places. Right. Um, the, uh, the networks that, that I really discovered there, um, uh, were, I would say that they were kith and kin networks among young people, uh, coming of age in the late fifties and 1960s. Uh, these were people that had attended school in Texas and may have uh, worked as farm workers or had settled out in places like Wisconsin. So there are people there like Jesus Salas in particular uh, who really kind of uh, provide a template for understanding how people could be active and engaged both in Texas and in Wisconsin in a variety of movements. Um, and when I first began the project, I did oral histories with people in Texas and Wisconsin and the overlap and connection between the people I was interviewing was was evident. Um, but I remember thinking that I'd had advice from other historians, my advisor, and other people that you know linking things or tying things down with oral history was always problematic uh, mm -hmm. for historians. Mm -hmm. uh, and what I found was that when I was at the uh, archives in both Texas, Wisconsin, and then at the uh, Ruther archives uh, on the United Farm Workers, uh, the very same people were not only in those stories, but they were connected to the narrative I already had discovered through the oral histories uh, through citable primary sources in archives. And so I was really happy to see what migrants really had said to me was an obvious thing. You know, these people are able to move back and forth and participate uh, in all these different movements with, with say, two to three months lead-in time. Uh, to find documentary evidence at the Walter Ruther uh, Library that showed how uh, activists uh, were, say, for example, in South Texas and then Wisconsin, and then two months later back in South Texas as they were organizing. In, in that case, it was the labor union, not the United Farm Workers, but uh, Obreros Unidos. Right. Um, and so it was nice to see that something re that really started uh, and, and grew out of my conversations with the migrants uh, was so well anchored in traditional archive-based sources. Mm -hmm. And so when I saw it there and I saw it in both places, uh, I knew I kind of hit something really, really different and new. That's great. And it, it what comes across to me when I read, because I read these two books, you know, together, is that there, you know, there there's definitely seems to be a connection between the two. Uh, you, you do use the example, you begin the, the Tejano diaspora with uh, an example of... Um, 
uh, Los Cinco's or the Los Cinco effort in uh, Crystal City, Texas, and then you touch on that at the beginning of the Rethinking the Chicano Movement. That's not so much the connections with between the between the two, though. The, the connection that I really started to think of, since you got me thinking of diaspora with the first book, mm-hmm. I started thinking about that, you know, as as I was reading the second one, which is really a a survey of the Mexican American Civil Rights Movement in the 1960s and 70s, where you incorporate, uh, you know, newer scholarship uh, stuff that's come out really probably mostly within the last 10 to 15 years uh, to reevaluate the movement's you know major epochs in, it, in its legacy, and so that got me thinking about uh, like, like I mentioned again here, um, diaspora and and how the national scope of the Chicano movement, because as it's been explained by you know both you in this book and and, and other scholars is that. The movement was really multinodal, and it was, uh, you know, there are a number of movements within movements here. Uh, so in a way, it seemed that because of this multinodal nature, it kind of reflected a, a, a type of diasporic experience uh, of ethnic Mexicans living in the United States, and particularly, you know, younger, uh, you know, Chicano and Mexican-American students that were, you know, in the six, late 50s and 60s that are really coming into, uh, you know, late adolescence, early adulthood, and, and getting active, you know, themselves politically. Um so, did you comment on that? I mean, did, did you see that ex- experience? Would you, you know, hesitate to connect that diasporic term, you know, with the Chicano movement, or do you think it fits? Well, I think um, one of the things that I was trying to do with the uh, Rethink the Chicano Movement book was was to write something that was trying to be national in scope uh, with a, a good degree of coverage. And I think one of the things that uh, I was really struck by was. Um, Looking at, say, materials from uh, the Raza Unida, uh, the convention in 1972, or taking a look at uh, the Chicano movement newspapers um, and looking at them all over the country, uh, mm-hmm. one of the things I really was struck by was the degree to which people were paying attention to things that were happening all over the place. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Chicanos in Los Angeles were reprinting material, uh, whether it's news or whether it's a uh, uh, particular activist events uh, that are happening all over the place. Um, and so it seemed to me that even though we think, say, for example, of the 70, 72 meeting of La Raza Unida or some of the uh, uh, meetings uh, headed up uh, by Cork Gonzalez in Denver as places of coming together and discord, um, I think one of the things that really happened and grew out of those was a sense of a national Chicano presence. And um, I was really kind of impressed getting into all of the newspapers and seeing the ways in which, uh, let's say, people in um, Lansing, Michigan, were really plugged into what was happening everywhere else in the movement. And that people at what is often considered to be uh, the various kind of key epicenters of people in places like Texas or California uh, were also very much aware of what was going on uh, on the frontier or uh, out on what might be considered the periphery of the movement, and that places that might not have seemed so central in terms of population, like Denver, uh, were really places where a lot of people came together and passed through, not only Chicanos, but uh, people from other movements as well. So I think to see the Chicano movement develop not in isolation, but as part of this national conversation about what it is, what, what it means to be a Chicano. And these are young people, too. I mean, a lot of it has to do with this idea of identity in this kind of, I think, really rich period of social experimentation. So, yeah, it was, it was really kind of an eye-opener for me to see all those newspapers laid out with other material and kind of see that it revealed this national conversation, um, even if it was people in East Los Angeles uh, or Michigan, for that matter. Right, right. Is it, there seem to, uh, and at least in, in, it seems when um, you know you look at the the, the movement uh, collectively that that there's there's a lot of talk, or at least the publications, there's a lot of talk of Los Angeles, a lot of talk of uh, Denver, there's a lot of talk of a you know a number of other spaces. Um, but truly, that that national character, um, I think, is something that. Uh, that that is is now in recent scholarship has become more appreciated and and what's 
pointed to that is, as you mentioned, the the print media culture, the the rise of Chicano journalism within the movement, um, and then also another one. And uh, you know, there's actually an event that I attended last night that referred to this was uh, the you know Chicano art movement and uh, you know the murals that started popping up you know all throughout the Southwest. Uh, and uh, so can you talk a bit about the about the the art movement itself? Uh, you know, and and why that was such a central role within uh, you know the Chicano movement. Uh, what 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 function did it play? You know, I mean, we we tend to think of the uh, the Chicano movement was very political, right? It was it was reformist right. in nature. It it, it imbibed this uh, you know militant ethos that uh, a bit more militant than the previous generation, perhaps. Um, but really, uh, you know, what when you look at Chicano and Mexican American culture today, or at least its popular representations, so much of it is rooted in the symbols and the art that that came out of this period. Uh, so, can you talk about you know the, the role of art and murals, you know, with the movement, and because you do have a chapter on that, and it, it did seem to yeah. be something. That's, it's definitely representative nationally, right? Um, I, I think you know the importance of art in the Chicano movement uh, uh, has been, I think, sometimes overstated, but but uh, not by much. I think um, if you look at uh, the interviews done with artists in places like. Uh, Los Angeles or San Francisco or Chicago, for that matter, what you see is that art didn't develop after the movement. It developed within the movement. And the artists themselves saw their work as key to a whole variety of other things that were going on. So, for example, I remember, uh, I can't remember which artist it was, but it was an artist that was working both in Chicago and later in San Francisco, uh, that artist had said, you know, when people start seeing kind of these big grand narrative histories of uh, of their place in the world as Chicanos, say at Casa mm-hmm. Aslan in Chicago, they begin to push the boundaries for other things. They begin to ask why their schools don't serve them. They begin to ask why the garbage doesn't get picked up. Mm-hmm. And that right. leads to a variety of kind of grassroots connections for them. And so I think the art aspect of it gave people reflective spaces. It also enabled them to mark out in a rapidly changing urban environment uh, places that were many homelands within, say, giant cities like Chicago or Los Angeles. Um, and then to and, and then to make claim uh, 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 or, or to make claims on those spaces. And I think uh, that's been an ongoing tension. I mean, one of the things that I've seen in the last, say, five to ten years is the degree to which those visual territorial claims made by Chicano and I would say also other activists in minority communities in urban areas, mm-hmm. how those claims have been challenged by gentrification. So, right. mission dist- yeah, the Mission District is a great example of you know a place where working class people probably can't afford to live anymore. Right. But the territorialized claims that tell these grand narratives are still there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, I think the movement developed, the arts movement developed in tandem with the Chicano movement. And I think has continued to have this really helpful narrative uh, uh, I'm losing words here. I apologize. No. Uh, it, it allows for narratives to be durable over time. And so mm-hmm. if the activism has, say, for example, changed or died down, the mural still tells this epic narrative. Right. Um, and I think it was really important for those artists to be able to express those things at those really important times in tandem with other things going on in the movement. Well, yes, and, and I really see a connection between you know the the broader pot project. One of the broader projects of of the movement was really geared towards educational reform and you know claiming space uh, and reforming uh, you know educational institutions. Uh, so we we see this with um, and you have chapters on this as well. You know the the you know student blowouts and walkouts that it happened a lot in uh, you know East LA. But uh, you know the the rise of et- Ethnic uh, studies and the push for ethnic studies and, and groups like Mecha within on college campuses and so I think in it, I think the arts movement in a way can can be seen as a as a way of you know taking that that message of you know claiming space and you know pushing for a a 
a different narrative, educational narrative, um, you know, but doing that publicly, uh, you know, I don't know. You have thoughts on that? It's just, it's just a thought that started coming to my head at this this moment when when I hear you talking and I'm thinking about, you know, the the broad aims of, of the, the movement. So much of it um, by students was led to really push for those types of reforms. And so if you look at the art in a way of, of you know, educating a public and, and ter- telling an alternative narrative while at the same time claiming space, it seems to fit within that, definitely that project that, uh, you know, the, more, the student activists were pursuing as well. Oh, yeah, very much so. I mean, I think, I think for somebody, say, in San Diego that's, that's not going to be taking a Chicano Studies course, uh, they can check out those murals and get a real sense of, of the narrative of Chicano Studies 101 and Chicano mm-hmm. Studies Upper Division. Um, there's a really important telling there. And I think, you know, for, for people that are uh, taking advantage of what, these, what might be termed museums of the street, um, mm-hmm. that probably brings them to ask a lot of questions about sort of the narrative of Chicano history. And, you know, I think about the murals in San Diego and people asking, you know, uh, why is there a swastika there? Why are these representations uh, on each of the pylons telling different stories? Uh, as part of a, I wouldn't say single narrative, but a parallel narrative. Um, and so I think for some people who aren't going to be in the student movement, the murals kind of plug them into uh, the basics of, of, I would say, Chicano studies in, in really important ways, and also a sense that something's happened here. Mm-hmm. Uh, something right. happened here in all of these different cities and all of these different barrios. Something happened here, and if people see murals and they ask questions, that's a really good thing. Um, the other thing you're, you're, you're speaking about in terms of student efforts and student movements, the one thing that I was really struck by is that and I think it's hard for some some Chicano activists still living and, and, and doing work today to, to look back and see how reformist their movement was. Uh, right. I think right. I think people like radical things. You know, I, I know a lot of scholars who love to study kind of really small failed movements. Uh, but, you know, there was something really important about this being a reformist movement. There was something really important about, say, uh, the Cal State system admitting more Chicanos, or the University of Illinois, or the University of Wisconsin, uh, and you could say the same for all of these places where people found themselves, that having Chicanos at the University of Washington in Seattle, that's what the movement was about, uh, because it wasn't so much that you needed a lot of you know, high-paid Chicano corporate lawyers, although I don't, I don't think that's a bad thing at all. Um, but the movement really was about opening up the promise of American society, um, not just the rhetoric of democracy and Americanism, but actually giving it real form. And so I think those young people that were pushing the boundaries, um, I think in some ways I categorize them less as radical, right. but more as you know, kind of acculturated activists who are pushing the boundaries of this idea of American inclusion. Mm-hmm. and. Mm-hmm. I think you see that in the walkouts um, in Los Angeles. It's this kind of, and in Texas as well, and other places. There were walkouts all over the country. Basically, young Chicanos saying that they want their schools to do more than train them to do the jobs their parents or grandparents might have done. Right. And I think that's what schools have done for a lot of different immigrant groups over time. Uh, and I think making those claims in the 60s and 70s was really key. Um and it was reformist. It wasn't a radical overturning of the system. It was about creating pathways for Chicanos to play a role in the broader society, as unglamorous as it might seem to be an accountant or a lawyer or a doctor or a police officer or a dentist. Uh, having those things blocked uh, was wrong, and these young people knew it. Right, and... You know, so we're making connections here between uh, you know, the well, in using the, the term reformist, it really then you know connects the movement as you know scholars have increasingly done. I think you know over the last ten to fifteen years or so, you know, with previous Mexican Americanist mobilizations, right? So that when you look at um, you know say the, the World War II veterans or you know some of the activism you know before World War II, it was you know 
a lot of it was related to educational reform, uh, either ending desegregation, either ending segregation uh, within schools, or you know pushing for um, bilingual education in in a form, uh, you know expanding economic opportunity, you know labor activism, as well as that broader inclusion into American society. So there's you know looking at it that way, there's these really strong connections between the movements. Yet there was this militant ethos. So can you talk a bit more about um, then what what signifies the the sixties and seventies mobilizations as different in in you know particularly you know uh, I'm thinking here of you know identity and, and ideology. Right, right. Um, it seems to me that there was um, there was a a strong sense that perhaps previous generations had been far too patient. Um, and I think this is true for Chicanos, but also true for African Americans and others. Uh, the the belief that while rejecting, I think, the s- slow road to change approach, and that, and I'm not saying that's what it was, I'm just saying perhaps young people might have characterized it as that. Right. By rejecting that and pushing for a much more militant tone, while making, you're right, some of the very same demands, uh, I think that was an important transformation for uh, what really became the Chicano movement, that people were going to make a demand, they were going to make it in a way that was probably less polite than Lou Lack or Maldef later would, would say, for example. I wasn't thinking Maldef, I was thinking um, GI Forum. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would be less polite than those organizations while making many of the same claims. Um, and one of the things that I was really struck by was that while rejecting the tone, they were not rejecting uh, the basic ideas um, of reform, of greater inclusion, of what would become affirmative action, of those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was really a tonal shift. And it fit with all the other movements that were happening at the same time, uh, whether it was the anti-war mo- movement, uh, whether it was the African-American shift uh, to black power, uh, later the rise of the American Indian movement, uh, all of these movements were in tandem, changing their language, changing their tactics, becoming much more forceful. And yet, very few of them were calling for an overturn of American society and the right. creation of socialist utopias. Right. They were asking for more positions uh, in the freshman class in Southern California, Texas, mm-hmm. and elsewhere. And so that's what really struck me. It was radical. It had the rhetoric of radicalism but it had the message of reform. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, for me, I'd always seen and thought of the Chicano movement as this radical moment and looking at it and, and beginning to recharacterize it as radical in tone reformist in in actual policy. uh, You know, that was something that really struck me as, as an interesting uh, thing to see, not just in one place like say Texas or Wisconsin, but uh, to see it also in places like Seattle or Los Angeles or uh, Chicago, Illinois, for that matter. Let's talk about the the issue of identity because I think that uh, this rearticulation of identity as a you know taking pride in um, you know ethnic culture as well as in brown skin particularly and we see this across movements uh, connections with the African American Black Power movement that this this was inherent within some of the you know the radicalism and the way these these new students were or this new type of activism was re, was being interpreted as radical. So, will you uh, comment on that, Mark? You know. Particularly the connection again between a rearticulation of identity that's that's not tied specifically to assimilating to American norms or even to whiteness. Right. I, I think I think uh, the idea that minorities in the United States could be proud of the fact that their skin was a different tone or color, that their hair was different, those kinds of things were really key because so much emphasis had been put in the past on fitting into uh, white society or the mainstream. And that one of the things I think that grows out of the Chicano movement and other movements is this belief that the society needs to open for the people, regardless of the color of their skin, what their hair looks like, whether it's long or short, etc., that those things that we would call today identity um, do not need to be given up in order for people to function in a democratic society. And that efforts in the past, which had embraced this idea of 
uh, assimilation and fitting into the mainstream might have had really good effort, uh, good goals, but that th- these were no longer necessarily part of the movement. That you could be a brown power brown power Chicano and yet still be pressing for greater access uh, in in terms of education, in terms of government jobs, in terms of corporate jobs, and all sorts of other things that look like um, seeking to be part of the mainstream. And I think that's a really key aspect of the Chicano movement is being reformist. Um, so Chicano studies still functioning mainly uh, on the campuses of universities, whether it's Stanford or the University of Wisconsin, uh, but that claiming that space did not require that they give up certain key aspects of who they were. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really important thing. Um, and I think it allowed for later movements to be much more open in terms of issues of self-definition and community definition. And so the Chicano movement was one of several key movements in the 60s and 70s that finally just threw down the gauntlet and said, we get to be brown, we get to be black, we get to be whatever it is we are calling ourselves. And that doesn't mean that you, the society, institutions, corporations, can limit our opportunities. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Or even, and even I, I think um, that what they were claiming was to, again, disassociate themselves with society. Because I think in, in the popular discourse, particularly at, at the time in the, in the media, uh, these groups were differently. And when I'm, these groups, I mean, you know, the, the Chicano uh, activists uh, and, and black power activists in particular were, were you know, portrayed as anti-American. Looking back at it now, you know, after, after 40 years, right, we see that what was happening actually was very American. It was, you know, these identities, right, haven't been necessarily articulated uh, or aren't articulated. They didn't, they weren't imported, is I guess what I'm saying, you know, from a foreign yeah. entity, right? These were, uh, American, uh, born, uh, you know, students, children, activists that, uh, again, were just articulating a, a new sense of ways that they were seeing themselves, but, Again, I think the point that I'm making here that we're, as we look at it back now, we we really see this very much. This is an American thing that was happening, and you know, fascinatingly enough, now as as I've learned, um, you know, working with students and seeing the, the work that they're studying is as to seeing how you know something like Chicano identity, you know, has been actually now it's an export. You know, <laughs> there is actually a a Chicano culture in Japan. You know, where people, right. you know, dress like, uh, you know, uh, Chicanos, Mexican Americans, and, and they, they drive, you know, low riders, and it, and it, you know, it is very, an alternative type of subculture, but it's, you know, it's, it's in Japan, it's in parts of Latin America, and, it, you know, so in that way, very, really, really is, uh, you know, an American thing that occurred, uh, during those years. Uh, you know, and it's very much tied to then, you know, the nation and evolution of people, you know, making, you know, more claims for, you know, both uh, political as well as societal inclusion. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that uh, kind of struck me was I was at a conference uh, for inter-American studies in Europe, and there were people giving papers on uh, modern day social movements in Latin America. And many of those scholars had pointed out that the activists in Latin America were looking to the development of the Chicano movement and other movements in the United States uh, in order to develop repertoires for their own movements. Uh, so I think that kind of transnational Chicano identity, Chicano politics is something uh, that, yeah, I, I think it, 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 what you mentioned in terms of Japan is, is these are really interesting areas for study that need to, need to be developed. Um, Probably by sociologists and anthropologists first, but right. um, mm-hmm. it still seems like a really rich area. And I think, in terms of the impact of the Chicano movement, and you know, as you mentioned, um, the Chicano activists were branded un-American; they were branded communists. And I think after the Cold War, it might be easy for us to sort of forget how powerful those weapons were. Right. Uh, in terms of if you branded someone a communist, you know, that could be the end of the end of the day for their movement. And if mm-hmm. you think about mm-hmm. this, this wonderful work by, uh, uh, David Montejano, uh, looking at Texas, the way in which Henry B. Gonzalez, I think in some ways a really important, powerful, uh, Mexican American, uh, uh, activist in a lot of ways, uh, really was so threatened by these things that, uh, you know, he'd branded them 
anything you could in order to sort of weaken the impact of the Brown Berets and other Chicano activists, Mm -hmm. even though I think the kinds of things that he was pressing for as a reformist uh, politician uh, were often not that different from some of the things, at least, that those young Chicanos wanted. Uh, They looked different. They acted different. And... I wouldn't want to say that it was at all about, you know, acculturation. I mean, you know, they were dreaming of utopias. There were ideas there that I think were really rich. The idea that community centers could allow for a real change in inner city communities, that there Mm -hmm. were alternatives to gang life, that there were, um, you know, as, as women brought challenges, there were alternatives to machismo that, you know, Chicano men hadn't really thought of. And that the movement was something that was organic and growing and changing. And so, um, yeah, I really don't want to downplay the degree to which uh, people that established community organizations really felt that those could be the beginning of some kind of utopian experiment. And I think uh, those things change over time, but I wouldn't want to downplay that sort of idea that uh, they could create alternative homelands and that they could create alternative spaces, uh, even if they didn't make it through the 70s or even into the 1980s, that those ideas were very much a part of why people were dreaming this kind of Chicano dream in a way. Right. No, and that's one of the things that fascinates me the most about uh, Mexican-American politics more broadly, you know, particularly between the generations, both, you know, the the Great Depression, World War II generation and uh, the Chicano generation was, you know, the the building of alternative institutions and, and community organizations that sought to you know, directly address what, how society, how they saw society was failing them. That's, I, I agree. I mean, that I, I see as, um, although it's articulated different across, you know, between the two generations, um, I think that's where I see a lot of this, you know, the real innovation and this, uh, a real, you know, push to try to remake society and actually implement it, not just, not just dream it up, you know, and, and, and say, oh, wouldn't this be nice? But say, okay, let's, let's actually, let's form these organizations and these are going to be the, the roles of this organization. This is what it's going to do. It's, it's going to feed, you know, this part of the community or provide this service or that service. Um, so, I mean, I agree with that, uh, completely. Another thing that I really appreciated that you do early in the book is, uh, in differentiate, uh, and, and define, uh, Chicano nationalism, um, as, you know, in association with, but, you know, not exactly the same as what Chicanismo is. And I, I think a lot of times the, the two terms, at least I know I've been at, uh, you know, guilty of doing this is, have been conflated. So can you, uh, distinguish the two, uh, for us and, and talk about how they were connected? You know, what was the purpose of, you know, Chicano nationalism and how it fit within the movement and then Chicanismo as, you know, it was articulated as well? Yeah. Uh, well, on the plane of nationalism, it would seem to me that there was this uh, real desire on the part of activists to come up with uh, certain key aspects of a movement that they could agree on, whether they were in Colorado or whether they were up in Washington State. Um, I think that you know these aspects of defining Chicanos as a people that could confidently assert their place both in uh, Mexico and the United States as a North American Raza mm-hmm. uh, was really important, that they could make claims as citizens and as people, kind of a more human rights orientation, and that those things could be defined uh, within the grassroots in all these different places as people saw fit, but that there was sort of a binding ideology of community uh, of, I would maybe call it a transnational sense of belonging and identity, um, but a very localized understanding as well. And so the nationalism for me, it seemed was less about, you know, the sort of irredentism or the kinds of things that they focus on when they find out that a politician in California was once a member of Mecha. Um, but the kinds of things that tied people together with a sense of who they were. And yes, it was a youthful endeavor, uh, a nation within a nation, uh, this idea that there was a homeland that was lost. Um, uh, again, all those ish- issues and contradictions are there. You know, Native Americans are obviously looking at this from a different perspective and say New Mexico, you know. Um, but a narrative that people could embrace at the time that fit the contours of their efforts to build community. That's the way I see Chicano nationalism functioning, 
and sort of going through all the elements of how people defined it. Um, Chicanismo was, it seemed to me, this, um, I think it really had its roots in this kind of masculine brotherhood sense uh, mm-hmm. within communities um, that right. many of these Chicanos were themselves, even if they were in college, uh, you know, they were part of communities that were mainly working class. And so, um, you know, my own father had been in a gang where they tattooed each other. Uh, and, you know, that sense that they were part of these male communities that would last lifetimes, whether they were officially gangs or not. Um, the sense of Chicanismo uh, tended to fit within that, that you knew who your friends were. Mm-hmm. Um, I think women pushed the boundaries of that and said, you know, m- maybe we'll call it something else, but it's all got to be about community. <laughs> and, exactly. you know, that like many men now and many men then, you know, the they were challenged by their own beliefs, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, if they believed in equality and an opening of society, uh <laughs> They were, I think, surprised that that Chicano women uh, defined themselves into what you just might call Chicanismo uh, in a way that was going to be problematic, and we've seen some really great research on that. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, but I see it as that social tie. Uh, the nationalism is the idea, and the Chicanismo is the social tie, uh, an evolving social tie challenged by women uh, and others, uh, but yet, nonetheless, based within that kind of person-to-person connection that oftentimes young men had, but I think in the movement itself, it changed and became different. Right, right. No, thanks for that. And um, I, I want to talk uh, also a bit about uh, the legacy, because uh, that's another um, thing that's brought up both in you know, the beginning and throughout, and then we bring it home at the, at the end of the book, is really um, what the, the movement accomplished. There, there's a tendency a lot of times to analyze movements to look at what, uh, to, to compare the initial visions and, and the idealism and then look at the end result and to say, well, these movements either failed or didn't succeed in this way or that way. But a lot of the a lot of times it's very uh, myopic, right? It doesn't uh, see, you know, how, uh, you know, one movement then connects to another and spurs another whole generation, say, of activists, per se. Uh, a few of the things that I uh, really appreciate that you mentioned uh, in referring to the legacies of the Chicano movement, uh, one of them uh, I'm, I'm going to read here, and this comes towards the end. Uh, you mentioned here that, that staking out a truly transnational and transcultural space for people and communities that lived between and across the U.S.-Mexico border, that that is perhaps one of the most lasting legacies of the movement. Uh, can you speak on that a bit? Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> I think one of the things that the Chicano movement did, and perhaps it goes back to this kind of idea of Chicanos as a North American community, uh, rather than, say, just a Mexican community or, an, or a U.S. community, mm-hmm. um, that that was something that was malleable and flexible enough to be used by uh, immigrants, rights, activists that I'd sort of come into contact with in places like Chicago and uh, Wisconsin. Um, and I think that was an enduring legacy of the movement, that it created this space that people could pour content into, people who were Mexican, immigrants, children, and seeking to carve out their own identity in the United States, as well as, say, a 72-year-old activist participating in, sometimes reluctantly at first, this kind of broader sense of a transnational, transcultural, North American community. Um, And I think that is something that I think has quite a bit of potential moving forward for people because I think, you know, one of the things that I was very familiar with spending most of my time in ethnic communities in Chicago and Wisconsin was that Mexicans were Mexicans and Chicanos were Chicanos and Tejanos were Tejanos and you could break down the community into all these different categories. Mm-hmm. Um, but that with the immigrant rights movement and also the Dreamers movement, uh, people were willing to blur those lines and find content that they could share with each other. And I right. think, you know, in this highly dynamic immigrant long-term settler community of uh, uh, Mexican ancestry people, you, you saw that the Chicano movement had provided sort of a vehicle for 
understanding and mobilizing and I think coming to terms with one another. Mm-hmm. The idea that there were there was less that separated long-term U.S. citizens who were Mexican-American or Latino or Chicano uh, from new immigrants. There were, there were more things that tied them together than kept them apart. Right. Um, and I think the Chicano movement was, was a way and, and provides for a way to translate those things into usable kind of resources and ideologies. Right. You, you're right that the, the movement itself created you know, the infrastructure Right to accommodate the Latino demographic revolution that that would occur during the late twentieth century, and you know that uh, you know the, the rise of new movements, as you just mentioned, the, the new immigrants' rights movement, uh, the sense of uh, you know a new pan Latino politics, right? Uh, so more inclusionary type of um, imaginary of both social and ethnic community, uh, you know, as well as political activism that the movement created a type of infrastructure and open doors for that to, that to emerge and that to, that to blossom. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, I think it's very helpful in terms of college campuses and high schools and middle schools, uh, that the infrastructure of Chicano hiring, and I would say probably in other places, a more broadly Latino hiring, uh, has really created infrastructures of support for young people, college students. And, you know, I, I've taught Chicano studies at some campuses that don't have a lot of Chicanos. And, you know, having students come in and, and pick up their first book uh, is an important step. Um, they're already active. They're already mobilized. Um, but maybe they don't see themselves. And I'm speaking of young people. Mm-hmm. You know, at 18, can you really see yourself as part of a hundred-year movement uh, that was expanded and, and it really exploded in interesting ways in the 60s and 70s. Um, once you plug into that, um, I think you can benefit from all of the tools that are there. Um, and, and I think that that's something that's still unfolding. Um, in terms of politics, I see that there is this really interesting evolution, slow evolution, but it's an evolution, I think, that has origins in the Chicano movement of Mexican-American and more broadly uh, Latino representation um, all over the place in places where you really might not expect it. Um, So you have, you know, Chicanos being elected to aldermanic positions in places like Chicago where that might have seemed, you know, impossible 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they're borrowing from these kind of repertoires that have their roots in the Chicano movement. Uh, It's not a surprise to me that, you know, some of the people in elected offices uh, from California to the East Coast had participated in, in, in either the Chicano movement or uh, the Puerto Rican uh, civil rights movement. Uh, those are key. Uh, and to see young people sort of taking the next step uh, and borrowing those tools is something I think is a real legacy as well. Um, and the language is there. You know, it's, there, there's a radical language. Uh, that can be utilized. Uh, the rhetoric of radicalism is sometimes needed uh, to prod people to open up their understanding and their sense of what you know American uh, society can be about. Um, the First Amendment's uh, very helpful in that as well. Right, right, and you know, I'm also thinking we've touched on it, uh, you know, a, a few times today. But um, you know, you state very. Clearly, again, towards the end of the book, that the movement's impact on education cannot be overstated. And the more I thought about it, uh, you know, the more, you know, particularly in, in the reading of the book, uh, and I looked at my own educational experience, you know, I, I couldn't, I cannot now imagine what our educational, you know, system, you know, from even kindergarten, you know, right all the way through higher education would look like now, you know, if it wasn't for the Chicano movement and movements like it. I mean, particularly because of, you know, the emphasis on bilingualism, uh, bilingual education, curricular reform, i.e., you know, the, the, the bringing forth of ethnic studies, new, uh, you know, curriculums that reemphasized different populations and cultures. And then as well as we've, we've mentioned here is the rise of, you know, Chicano education, educators and professionals. Um, can you speak a, b- a bit on that? Because I think, I mean, truly, I think that's p- perhaps what a number of us can really look at, you know, materially and put our finger on and and uh, think of, wow, yeah, what would the what would our educational system be like without these these movements? Yeah, I think um, a couple things. You know, having a bilingual counselor in schools is important. Um, that provides a mechanism for 
new immigrants and settled community members alike to find out if they're not fluent English speakers or they're not as confident about their English and public conversation, find out about how their kids are doing. And those things are really important. Um, I, I think it opens up this uh, broader question where I think uh, Chicano history needs to um, perhaps begin to incorporate some different community histories. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean, I, you know, I think there's this really important unwritten history of the development of the Chicano middle class. Um, right, right. Uh-huh. Uh, and I think that some folks who've written, I think, some critical uh, 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 research about, you know, Hispanics, I'll just use that term, um, have, however, cited all the demographic data that's out there about uh, intermarriage rates, about uh, education rates and things like that. Um, and, you know, just my own experience teaching at Princeton and Notre Dame, uh, there were a lot of Chicanos there that, uh, you know, weren't coming out of the low-income community, but they were right. coming out of, you know, sort of this, like, guidance counselor, father, uh, right. uh, assistant professor, mother. And um, I think that uh, that is, there's this history of the Chicano middle class that we need to write. Someone needs to write. Um, because I think from the mid-'70s onward, we really begin to see the development of that. And it changes people's lives in very significant ways. I remember when I was in law school and there was a Chicano lawyer that came to talk and, uh, you know, yes, he, he can afford art and a house that I can't afford. But he said, you know, it's really important that there are Chicanos in these important places in Washington, D.C., in Sacramento and other places, uh, not only to write checks for various political campaigns, mm-hmm. but to someday do things like others have done in the past, and that's endow professorships and help build a soccer field for students at a high school in California. I think those are really important things that if if we continue to believe that Chicano middle-class players, even though I would say most of the academics writing about Chicanos are middle-class at this point, um, that there's that we can't write that history. I think we miss out on how important the development of that community was. Mm-hmm. All those Chicano teachers, all those Chicanos in in the helping professions, not to mention high professionals. Mm-hmm. Uh, that 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 impacts people in a positive way every single day, uh, whether it's uh, in Los Angeles or Chicago. And uh, I think it's about time someone writes that history because. Uh, apparently a friend of mine said that you have to wait something like 30 years before writing something. Mm-hmm. And that means, yes, we can write about the seventies uh, and eighties. So it's, right, it's, it's right. open. It's open and it needs to be done, I think. Um, and I think the African-American um, uh, scholars have really done a good job of opening up, say histories of African-American educators and the African-American middle class. And I think uh, it's time for Chicanos to perhaps get into that. Uh, without giving up their own radical credentials if they want to maintain them. Right. But I think, uh, I, I think yes, uh, it, it's a very, very important development from the 70s to the present. No, I agree with that. And I, I think, I wonder, I don't know what the answer would be, but I wonder how much the, the you know, the connection of Chicano and, and Mexican-American culture to, you know, the working class and immigrant immigrant experience is perhaps somewhat of a hindrance to that. There's may, perhaps a feeling that if you start writing those middle-class histories, there's somewhat maybe a loss of history, a loss of identity um, as, again, you know, the, so much, I mean, you look at the murals, so much of it is is rooted in that migration and, and working-class background. I don't know. Do you, think right. there's, do you think that's where some of this tension comes from? Maybe. Oh, I, I, I think I think you hit the nail on the head. I think there's this idea that perhaps um, there's a politics of engagement that is um, put forward if we write only working class histories. And I say that as someone who's written uh, working class history. Um, I, I think, however, though, um, and just to sort of bring it up again, I think you know the African American experience. We have these histories of all kinds of things that you wouldn't have expected to grow out of the 60s and 70s. So, for example, uh, we have histories of African-American resorts and vacation planning uh, in the 50s in Saratoga Springs, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, 
we have the development of African-American uh, professionalism and uh, what that meant for the society and the community. Um, and I think there are people who, who include this work uh, in their own research, uh, uh, the way in which Chicano middle classes grow over time. But I think sometimes, uh, and I'm thinking about, you know, histories written by people about my age, sometimes when we come across people that sound too much like they want to participate in the mainstream of society, we, there's a tonal shift in the, in the narrative where, mm-hmm. uh, that seemed to be just to be blunt about it, selling out. Um, mm-hmm. but I don't think that's the case. Um, I, I think that the Chicano movement was going to, if you think about the claims that were made in key founding documents of the movement. I'm thinking about the plan of Santa Barbara and other mm-hmm. things like that, right? right? They were asking for inclusion that was going to lead to the development, I think, over time, of well-educated, right. well-connected, middle-class Chicanos who would change the meaning of society and open doors for opportunity. And if you open doors for opportunity, yeah, 30 or 40 years later, you're going to have a critical mass of people that are educators, administrators, and government employees and things like that. And uh, um, I think that that just can't be avoided. But I do understand this idea that if we stop writing the working class histories, that there may be a loss of commitment, at least among the academics themselves. But I don't think that's true. I think people can write really balanced community studies that show how uh, middle class input um, changed over time. And I would also point out that, you know, the origins of most of these activists that became, I would say, middle class by the 80s, uh, you know, were often working class. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so how middle class are you in the traditional sense uh, if you are the grandson of a farm worker? Uh, you bring some of that culture and continuity with you, uh, mm-hmm. even if you learn how to drink fancy wine. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I, 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 but I would also just go back to this idea that, that it's time that we get at this. And I think there, there are some scholars that have gotten at these questions earlier, uh, whether it's Mario Garcia or George Sanchez, uh, even David Gutierrez, uh, you know, the, the, they've, they've covered some of this. Right. Um, and I think now, perhaps, uh, you know, they've covered it in the 30s and the 40s. Um, I think it's time for new scholars to look at uh, the way in which the Chicano movement may not have created Aslan as a nation, uh, but may slowly be creating Aslan as a nation, as Chicanos may, in some places, uh, play a really significant role in the politics of uh Mexican, American, and Latino-dominant states, be it Florida or be it California or be it even, you know, the huge number of elected officials in uh, Chicago, Illinois. And that's going to change things. And politicians tend to be middle class. (laughs) But uh, the kinds of things they do uh, often are not purely focused on their own self uh, uh, and upward mobility. Um, but I think one of the things the Chicano movement was about was upward mobility. Right. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for, for speaking on, you know, both of these, uh, your, both of the books, both on, uh, the Tejano diaspora and rethinking the Chicano movement. I wanted to give you a moment before we wrap up, just to tell us a bit about, uh, what, you, what is you're working on this time? Uh, well, uh, presently, uh, I'm working mainly at the journal. So that's a lot of work. Uh, and, uh, however, uh, I have been doing research into a project that looks at uh, comparative memory in immigration museums. So I visited immigration museums in Europe and the U.S. and Australia and trying to think about the way that countries, through museum exhibitions, define membership in their communities. And I really hope to get something done uh, in that area uh, very soon. I'm also working on uh, what I think is going to be a a survey of Latino history in the United States. Uh, But uh, I do find that these projects look like they're going to be more slowly depressed than the previous two. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> gotcha. Well, you definitely have no, uh, tons on your plate. Uh, and, uh, you know, I appreciate you coming on and, and discussing both of the books and wish you best of the luck in, in those projects. And particularly the one, you know, on memory sounds, uh, I think really fascinating. It's, you know, the more I, I personally, I, you know, I study history, uh, you know, the more I see how much it is about memory, you know, it, and what type of, you know, memories and, and thereby identities and visions of, uh, you know, space are, are represented, you know. Whose history? Oh yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a really rich area, and there's some great folks in public history and museum studies. And uh, what I love about it is it's forcing me to read new stuff and think about a lot of topics outside of my own field. So I think it's fun to be engaging projects like that because it forces you to be a historian and and define yourself in a very broad way and i mm-hmm. i'm i'm really enjoying doing the research as for the writing well i haven't gotten there yet <laughs> yeah <laughs> i can empathize with that as well all right well all right. Th- thanks again uh, mark it was a pleasure and uh, best of luck on those projects well thank you very much it's been great thanks again for tuning in to new books in latino studies i'm david james gonzalez the host of the channel and i hope you've enjoyed my conversation today with mark Simon Rodriguez. We've been discussing two of his books, The Tejano Diaspora, Mexican-Americanism and Ethnic Politics in Texas and Wisconsin. It was published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2011, as well as his most recent book, Rethinking the Chicano Movement, published by Rutledge in 2015. I encourage you to get copies of Professor Rodriguez's book, and you may do so by clicking on our link to Amazon on our New Books and Latino Studies page. Also, if you'd like to contact us, feel free to send us an email at newbooksandlatinostudies at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter and Facebook. You may also track and download our podcasts on iTunes and Stitcher. 